The eviction of Dale Farm, the Irish traveller site in Essex, cost £4.8 million, resulted in 45 arrests and left around 80 families homeless. But, I mean, has it been worth it, especially this Every, month? it's been worth every fight. It's the best thing that us travellers ever done. We're proud people, so is our activists, is very proud. Well, what will you do now? Well, the future is not bright for anybody. We just have to wait and see. They say patience is a virtue. But I can wait as long as you do for a chance. Call me insane, but that's my end. Hi everyone and welcome to Untelevised, the podcast, the podcast where we explore social change and what is the world like now, how would we like it to be, what's possible and we aim high um, and then we look at how we might get there, what are the different types of theories or actions or movements that people have led over the years to try and change society and actually more importantly how can we all play our part in that as everyday people, not necessarily, not as politicians, you know, not as supposed experts, but just all of us? What does it mean for us? Um, my name is Mona, um, and I am one half of the Untelevised duo, and I am here with my colleague Fizeo. Hi, Fizeo. Hi, hi, Mona. Hi, everyone. Um, how are you, Mona? I'm feeling quite energized. I'm looking forward to a new season. Yeah, I know. Fourth season. <laughs> I know. Fourth season. We introed it last last week. Um, and our second collaborative season, which is really exciting. So we're doing this season with the New Economics Foundation and Shared Assets, um, digging into a topic that Dave kind of handed us and asked us to bring to life, which, you know, which people sort of do. And then we're scrambling around going, oh, my God, how do we do this justice? Um, but yeah, so we're exploring land. Um, everything about it like what it is and what it means for us and how we live on it and how we own it and how we fight over it and how we stop fighting over it and just everything to do with land um which follows on very nicely from our previous season where we explored climate and obviously land is a big part of that climate and what it is we're actually trying to preserve and protect um through our fight for climate justice as well so exciting lots to dig into yeah and we've had and we literally have we've had some of the most I think some of the most impassioned guests we've you know just like their whole lives are clearly about this issue mm. you know you talk to them and you're like whoa I could talk to you for hours yeah because it's just so intrinsically linked to who you are isn't it land um literally and I guess that's what we're going to be exploring literally in a few minutes but it's yeah I think that's what inspired so much passion in our guests and you heard just snippets of them in our last episode but yeah you can t I think you can all tell I'm brimming with excitement <laughs> excitement to get get into this um which actually in that that energy let's say that kind of um fidgetiness or whatever yeah. in you is quite is quite suitable as we today are going to kick off the season by exploring movement um what does it mean to move from land to land like actually starting almost with the most precarious end of the scale where people don't seem to belong to land or have land or be sort of stable on land and today we sort of look at the different ways that that might happen whether it's through force 
um, migration, you know, people who are refugees who have to seek asylum, or whether it's through choice. Um, so people who choose a lifestyle where they they actually don't set down roots anywhere, um, and how all of these things come to be. So, yeah, very exciting. And I think um, certainly, I don't know, like. I mean, I, I work with people every day who unfortunately have been forced um, to move. And so you're constantly exploring that. And I think, and you know, both of us, I guess, come from backgrounds where our families moved and yeah. are not living where they sort of, I don't know, in quotes, potentially were meant to originally live, so to speak. Yeah, like, yeah, aside from my personal connection to movement, I've just always been fascinated with the concept of borders mm. um, and like nationalities, nationalities and who moves, who's allowed to move, why we move, who supposedly has right over this part and this part and how essentially our fate of where we were born informs so much about our lives. So the idea of movement um, is in my soul. I'm very excited to explore this one, as I keep saying. Yeah. Should, we, should we do some yeah, terms? Yeah, let's do some terms. <laughs> before I explode with because Before we just sort of start moving all over the place. Yeah, let's, start, let's do some terms. All right, great. Right, so for my interview today, I do speak with somebody who spent a lifetime moving, but fortunately a bit sort of more voluntarily and as a more chosen way of life. Um, and so to define some terms that are relevant to that interview, um, the first one is nomadism or a nomad, which is how we would refer to a person who lives in a nomadic way. And nomadism essentially actually just means a lifestyle that's based around movement, not belonging somewhere, not having a base, like moving from place to place as a way of life. Um, and we had a previous podcast episode where we actually interviewed a group in the Netherlands who lived in somewhere called the Nomad State. Um, so you can also refer back to that if that is of interest. And so I speak today with um, Tyler who is from a traveler community. Um, and I'm sure many people have heard the word traveler and there probably are lots of different ideas and misconceptions about what that actually is. There are quite a lot of different traveler communities and the probably most common ones you will hear about are Irish travelers and Romani gypsies. So traditionally Irish travelers are a nomadic group of people from Ireland, um, but they do have a separate identity and heritage and culture to the community in general. Irish travellers sort of presence can be traced right back to the 12th century and then with migrations to Great Britain in the early 19th century. The Irish traveller community actually got categorised as an ethnic minority group under the Race Relations Act in 1976, so considerably more recent considering how long they've been around. Um, with Romani gypsies, um, they've kind of been considered to have been in Britain since at least 1515, um, after migrating from continental Europe during the Roma migration from India. The term gypsy comes from the word Egyptian, um, which is actually what people here at the time perceived them to be because of their dark complexion. But in reality, when analyzing the language and the history, it does seem to be that they have originated from northern India, probably around the 12th century. Um, there are other traveller groups as well, like sort of Scottish and, you know, other British traveller groups, but these are sort of perhaps the most common. It is believed that there's probably around 300,000 combined travellers in Britain at the moment. It's very, very difficult to actually get correct figures on this, because as you might imagine, when they go around and do like the census, um, it is harder to track down travellers and actually get them to report 
into these sensors. And so, for example, the most recent census, which was from 2011, that we actually have stats from, only estimated that there were just under 58,000 travelers um, in England and Wales. But actually, sort of, you know, more like deeper research put that in the range of 120 to 300,000. Um, travelers are considered to be some of the most marginalized and sort of disadvantaged groups in Britain, um, which we will get into a bit more with Tyler. And in my conversations, I'm speaking to Sam, um, who is a member of the diaspora, uh, which involves traveling, but slightly less recent and slightly less frequent than the traveler community. So being a member of the diaspora basically means that you're a member of a people who are away from an established or ancestral homeland. So I'm in the diaspora as someone of African heritage who currently lives in the UK or Mona's in the diaspora as someone of Iranian heritage who currently lives in the UK. So it basically just means that you're currently residing in a place that's away from wherever your established or ancestral homeland was or where your ancestors came from. So it's like the question, where are you really from? <laughs> where I might say, if someone says, where are you from? I might say London. If someone says, where are you really from? I might say <laughs> West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana. Um, so yeah, the diaspora is sort of being part of that community. We also speak about something called reparations. Now, reparations essentially means retrospectively redistributing wealth to communities that have historically been exploited for some form of financial, social, political gain, but mainly financial gain, such as enslaved people or their descendants, if enough time has passed that obviously those people can't directly benefit from any sort of redistribution of wealth or remuneration. So they can take numerous forms. It doesn't have to be directly transferring to my bank account. It could be things like affirmative action, scholarships or waiving fees. Um, it tends to be more token measures such as naming buildings after someone, uh, removing monuments. We've seen that more recently, removing statues or street names of slave owners and replacing those with um, like revolutionaries or people that have fought for change. And despite calls for reparations from many different communities over the years, globally, examples of reparations tend to have consisted of what I've just spoken about, more recognition of injustice and apologies. So you might have officials coming out and apologising for Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade um, or you might have individuals apologising for their family's role in it, but it very rarely um, has come in the form of something material, in the form of material compensation. Um, so in our conversation, one of the things Sam talks about is using land as a form of reparations. So redistributing land to people of colour in recognition of how it's been actually physically taken away from them in the past and how land has been used as a space to make money off of the labour and lives of people of colour. So one way to rectify that they feel is to redistribute that land in the presence to the people who are still suffering the consequences of the experiences of their predecessors and their ancestors. This week, um, I spoke with Tyler Hatwell, um, who had himself grown up in a traveller community as a child. 
Tyler is now the founder and executive director of Traveller Pride, which is an organization which advocates and provides services for LGBT plus travelers in the UK. He has worked in traveller advocacy for a number of years with a particular focus on education, issues of access, mental health and LGBT issues. He is a member of the showman community, which is what his family were, um, and advocates for better inclusion of showmen in wider traveller discussions. Beyond this, he now lives and works in London as a psychotherapist. And I figured out when we spoke that he was literally five minutes up the road from me and actually not traveling all that far off field. But um, yeah, so it was an absolute joy to speak to Tyler, who had just had such a sort of different type of life experience to anything that I myself was used to. So people often think, oh, well, you're, if you're a traveler, you want to be nomadic 100% of the time. But it's still good to have a base and to be able to kind of touch base with other people from your community that's not only on the road especially because it's getting harsher and harsher to live on the road um even though my family have been doing fun fairs in and around oxfordshire since 1840 um when we tried to get a quite small bit of land for ourselves that we could sort of put stay in the winter because otherwise we had to rent from other people and we were like losing a lot of money and it just it meant that it wasn't fit for our purpose. We were always fitting around somebody else. Um, the objections that we got from the locals were sort of completely absurd. Just with the, uh, it really did feel like a moral panic of, oh God, what are they going to do? Gonna... And now kind of fast forward 10, 15 years later, the village love us because we spend a lot of money in the pub and we'll sort of go to the local fete and that kind of thing. And we're ingrained and our, our kids go to the school and that's great. But there was just this sense of like, oh no, and we were quite lucky to get a place passed in terms of planning. And the, but the amount of people that either, you know, councils get given a budget to look into traveller accommodation and just don't spend it and don't do anything about it. Or, you know, they will knock back private um, sites as well. So if the council aren't providing their own, you think, well, I'll buy a bit of land and it just won't get approved because of any kind of like specious argument about it not being suitable so there's that element of it feeling almost that land and land ownership and a sense of belonging to an area is not for us or at least that's you know, the, the setup and the way that we're given to understand is that oh that's not for us if you want to live somewhere you have to do it our way which is a house or a tower block or something you can't you can't also be a bit nomadic. It's almost as if it's a bit of a trade or like we represent some kind of threat. But then um, to be a bit less polemic and miserable, because I feel like a lot of the time when traveler activists are asked to speak about something, it's only ever something miserable. But my sort of personal interpretation of land is that because we were moving around a lot as kids, um even though you could argue that sort of a kid that stays in one little village the whole time has a stronger connection to there than a kid who goes to dozens and dozens and goes to different schools and all this but it feels like i gained and sort of other traveler kids and other showman kids at least um gained a really interesting perspective on spaces because you're only there at a certain time of year usually you tend to keep the same rhythm each year and so you see 
a place in a very sort of specific time and you go to a bit of that place that most people don't really um like you know the local park or something yes it means something to them but they wouldn't live on it um and so you transform that place then as well it's for sort of 50 weeks of the year that's just the the recreation ground but then the fair turn up and by with the music and the lights and everything and all the rides, it completely changes what it means. And it, so we create a new space with the land and then we go and leave almost no trace apart from like the fact that the, the grass is a bit sort of dead because of the sun, but that comes back in a week. And it's really kind of fascinating for other people what we do to their space, uh, but also what kind of, uh, my relationship then is to, oh, um, let's say the town of Carton, you know, oh, that's the town that we're at at the end of May, you know, and it's almost like the time is also associated with the place and the feeling of it being, oh, it's always sunny there. Mm -hmm. I remember being a little kid and we used to open at a place called Bletchingdon, which was like a tiny, tiny little village um, with like so little going for it. But the thing that I remember is that, um, because when we were little kids, we would always open there when the conkers on the trees would have all fell. And the, the, on the little green that we're in, it's a tiny little green, it was thronged with conker trees. And so we'd go around and there'd just be thousands and thousands of them, it felt like. Uh, and we'd, like me and my sister, would just be playing with them. all the kids would sort of play with these conkers. And so that to me is what Bletchingdon is. And that's what it feels like to me. Whenever I see a conquer, I think of that place. Mm. And so you kind of, you get a different relationship to it than someone that's lived there all their life. They don't think of it as the conquer place. Mm. I mean, I guess this does, you know, and you've touched a little bit on this already, you know, this idea of whether, you know, and again, for people listening who may not really know, like whether being a traveler is a voluntary thing is it a chosen thing or is it a forced thing you know like you know we we hear about people who are forced to leave land right and you know we, we're certainly hearing about it loads again at the moment like if you are a refugee or something and actually you don't have that choice and then I've often thought of traveler communities as it being a little bit more of an active choice or maybe a philosophy or an ideology or something but do you see it I mean is it both and does it vary from different traveler communities to others like is it potentially even a privilege to be able to just choose to keep moving when there are other people who are dying to be able to stay still I think that I'm only really talking about a UK context here. Mm. Um, because like Roma for example or Sinti but more in particular Roma who are more recent migrants will some of them have been kind of displaced mm -hmm. in that way um, and we get some sense of, of displacement in a UK context, but that will be more often like, you may remember Dale Farm, which is where there was a huge traveler site, um, but it, they were sort of viewed to be violating planning permission and they were just all turfed off and kind of made homeless. A lot of them were then in caravans and were able to do something but some people were settled and static there and lost everything in a way that is sort of similar to what you're talking about but for a lot of us I mean it's interesting that you use the word like privilege to be nomadic because it feels like it would be way easier to not in some mm -hmm. ways and to settle mm -hmm. down um 
So if you look at kind of where travelers come from and why people started traveling, a lot of that was maybe to do with necessity or to maybe to do with kind of an economic uh, incentive. So fun fairs going around because in there was very little entertainment in the little villages, but if you stayed in one place, you could sometimes make money, but yeah, that was a good way to make your money or whatever. Um, or some of the older crafts that used to be used to exist for kind of other traveling groups. So, you know, Roman gypsies would go around and would sharpen knives or weave baskets and things and sell them. And you couldn't really stay somewhere full time with those skills because there wasn't enough call for it. But once a year, it'd be worth doing. And so it's kind of an economic thing or a, then became a cultural thing as well. Um, but then there was also an element of there were still prejudices. Um, and so if you go into the local town and they don't like you, you want to go. And if you are different, and the early, the first generations in particular of Romani gypsies will have looked different. And so if you live in a, in a sort of funny way in this strange caravan, and you're also dark skinned in a world, in a sort of UK context that most people will never have seen someone that looked like the first generations of Romani gypsies, there will be anothering and a sense that okay well you're welcome here because you're we need our knives sharpened but after that uh, like you to f off please and so that kind of that then eventually becomes a sense of culture now if you speak to some people who are a bit more romantic than me they will say things like oh you know it's also it's in the blood uh, mm -hmm. you know we've got to travel um and some people i think there's an element that if you've grown up in that way because you're also then always with others who are from your group you very rarely would go alone somewhere so it's sort of a safety in numbers thing whereas if i if like an irish traveler is just put in some housing estate that might be the only one there and so feel like oh you know i'm just like the dot on a domino and completely stand out and so there's an element of that being kind of what it's useful for. Mm -hmm. But equally, so when you do take that person and you put them in a housing estate that they don't feel they've got no connection to, people do sometimes say, oh, like I've almost got a psychological aversion to bricks and mortar. I, I, I've sort of seen written down in like, oh, this person needs this kind of thing because they have a site. And I don't know if there's, if that actually kind of holds water in terms of it's about the living in a house, it's about not moving. I think it's about a divorce from your community and the fact that mm. your everything that means something to you that you're used to is took away. I think it's just and sort of it's very jarring, you know. So for that person, they almost their sense is that they can't not move, or and even if you aren't moving, what's interesting is that some people they live on a site their entire lives, but want to stay in a trailer. They don't. Then mm. you think, well, you might think, well, what is the difference between that? and living half a mile away in a house yeah but it's almost like there's something about knowing that you're able to take off and go uh, in particularly in a world that is still i don't know if you've ever you know, gone onto a local newspaper where they've written about travelers and gone in the comments section but it kind of ranges from dislike to a, a sort of vaguely genocidal fervor yeah <laughs> yeah we should we should, you know, they should all be burnt or something. He said, well, he's just parked on the fucking green. Like, what on earth is your like mentality about? 
But if you know that that's, if I live in a culture where I see people hold those views, and even though they're probably quite fringe, like extremist views, like every comment is on the internet, there's, it's only loud, ignorant people that tend to do that kind of shouting. But you do get a sense of, oh, I, I don't want to be 100% tied down here. If I want to, I do want to be able to go. <laughs> and so I think that that is important. And so in a way, like, yes, it's voluntary. And we could all settle down and loads of us do and loads of us have. But I think there is, there stands to it sort of make sense that you would want to have that option of getting out. We did an episode um, a while ago on sort of on housing, um, and we learned in in the research for that that actually the UK does have the highest levels of like home ownership and has a very particular view of like home ownership compared to other countries in Europe where it did seem like there was, it was way more common to have models of housing that were cooperative or sort of some sort of shared ownership and certainly not where people kind of own some you know have to own something themselves for life. And you mentioned it being partly cultural, partly political, et cetera, and about the UK context. I mean, do you do you think there is then something in the UK where people view this idea of ownership of land or owning their own home or something as not just a practical matter and a, maybe an easier way to live, but actually as a, I don't know, a, a sense of status or, a, you know, as a, as a, as a, you know kind of a, a cultural aspiration or a social aspiration you know something okay. beyond just well of course I want a home because I need somewhere to live yeah I do it does feel like there is a sense of you know that whole an Englishman's home is his castle kind mm -hmm. of nonsense and yeah there's no there's nothing wrong with wanting somewhere stable to live in I think it's the most sensible thing in the world mm -hmm. but I think part part of what some people dislike about travelers is that um it feels like a, an affront to that mm -hmm. way of viewing things you know people it's not enough that well i do my thing where i live in my house and i you know live in the suburbs and i do what i want but i also don't understand why you know why on earth does he want to do that like a lot of i know some people that live on narrowboats and they get sort of strange amounts of abuse from people who are just like why on earth would you want to do a thing like that why does it matter to you no i don't i don't get why there's that sense of well if you think you're doing it wrong and you think i'm doing it right but sounds like my problem so why should you care <laughs> but there is a feeling that it's almost a threat because we represent um another option and it's like oh you know i'm running this race and it's quite hard especially these days it's getting harder and harder to get a house it's getting harder to kind of you know get a place that feels like your own and you end up in you know, these new build housing estates that are like sometimes quite bleak looking um they're just sort of enormous copies of each other um and so people aren't really satisfied with that but it's got to, you've got to it's the right thing to do and so when someone comes along and isn't playing that game i think you I, I wouldn't go as far to call it envy, but it is a sense of like, hang on, what, what's, what's he playing at? How come he isn't having to work as hard as that? And of course, I'm not saying that living on the road's easy. You do have to work quite hard. But I think anything that represents someone doing it differently, you know, in the same way of, you know, when the, when people first heard about, I don't know, polyamory or something, and they go like, 
hang on, you can't fucking do that. Uh, <laughs> just because they realised that they kind of had never even considered it. Yeah, yeah. And they're almost a bit annoyed that they hadn't thought of it. They hadn't thought of it. I mean, in that case, Tyler, so maybe what are then some of the benefits and challenges? You know, we've touched upon it a little bit, but like the travel life, what do you feel are the hard are the hard bits and maybe the, the romantic good bits? And are there elements of it that people could, if they don't want to completely go for it, you know, they're not willing to sort of, you know, but maybe they're curious about at least a little bit of the freedom it might bring or the alternativism, like can people replicate bits of it? Or is it a bit of a kind of all in type um, scenario? I don't know if people could kind of half ask it, <laughs> but I do think that kind of there are things about it that you could, that you could replicate in your life in some ways. So. I think the main thing that any traveller will tell you is, and I, I think this actually goes for any group of travellers, you might think, oh, yeah, this is only for really established communities. But I have heard about new travellers that have been on the road for not very long and have found this with other new travellers who are more established is an enormous sense of community and a real feeling of like, if my, if, you know, my dad is quite regularly getting a phone call from someone saying uh perry i've broken down on the side of the road you know like first a tire on the eight-wheeler um do you can i can you pop over and bring your sort of tools or whatever you know do you have a spare this do you have, and that sense of us all looking out for each other um is quite strong i could tell you like amazing stories of something goes wrong and we all turn up mob-handed to like fix it right away and yes, it doesn't mean we're always friends all the time, but when you're know, at the crunch, it feels like people are there. But equally, just on a day-to-day -day basis, in terms of, you know, it feels in some ways like, and I don't know if it ever was like this in villages, but how they kind of portray village life kind of 50 to 100 years ago of like knocking on the door and saying, I'm just off to the shop, you know, to an old person and saying, oh, do you want anything and that kind of thing. And, a sense that you know all know each other and of course that has its sort of downsides as well so if you're if you're if the community has broadly these kinds of views and you have a different view or let's say if it if you're from a so let's say traveler pride a particularly conservative part of the community and you don't fit in because you realize that you want to bring a girl home and you're a girl or whatever that's difficult because there's a sense that a bit like living in a small village, like everyone's curtain twitching and it's just, everyone knows what you're up to. That can be hard and that can be one of the challenges. But there's also a real feeling of being looked after and like, oh, I've just got to go to, um, I've just got to go to the shop. Can you look after the baby for 20 minutes? Yeah. And you trust each other with that. Mm -hmm. And the you let the kids kind of wander off. As a kid, I felt like a wonderful thing where, I didn't have to always be under my parents' side mm -hmm. because I knew that other people were looking after me, but it wasn't such a kind of, oh God, it's always mum, it's always dad. Um, so, oh yeah, I'm there with such and such and he's mm -hmm. nice. So that internal trust, that's brilliant. And I also think that the, like a real benefit is for kind of younger kids. I think you, I don't know if you grow up quicker, but I think you get a bit more street smart a lot quicker because you see lots of different sides of the world um, in a very short space of time. 
So we'd go to those like horrible little towns that we'd go to, and then we'd go to big cities and we'd go to smaller villages and we'd be in lots of different contexts. Uh, and then also I'd go with dad to like, learn kind of how to run the fair. And parts of that would be going to the guy that we get the generators off and learning how you talk to those people. And then learning, like going to the guy that we have to go into the council meetings and learning how we talk to those people. Uh, and then with the fair kind of taking the money and having to learn that. And so you learn a very broad set of skills that it takes you a lot longer to learn maybe if you're only in one place. And like, I, I went to university and I remember like meeting some people who were like very sweet, lovely people, but had essentially not really left their town mm -hmm. ever and had lived a somewhat sheltered life. And the level of naivety about kind of people that might be trying to con you or like just how to talk to some people felt uh, really like, astonishing that they just didn't know how to talk to a man in the street or were anxious about like picking up the phone and ringing the bank or the doctor or something. And I know that's really common and I'm not kind of trying to do down on anyone that's like that. But I think that you almost don't have that option when you're mm -hmm. a kid that's on the fair and you're gonna talk to so many different people every week and it's gonna be a kind of changing face, changing cast of not only the punters, but also the other people that are on the fair with you. Because like some, you don't move as one exact unit from place to place, like some new rides will come in and other ones will go. And so different families are there. So you're constantly meeting and chatting and forging these connections. And I think that really does, uh, does wonders for a kid's social development. So as the world is evolving um, digitally, technologically, you know, et cetera, like actually our connection to the whole world being very, very different now, whether we physically go, you know, travel to it yeah. or not. Um, also just in general, I guess, as politics changes and policy yeah. development, you, you mentioned earlier that it is becoming even tougher to own our own house or, you know, find somewhere that we can have a really decent base and so on. So as all these things, are shifting do you find that more people are moving towards maybe a travel life less is it becoming more or less appealing maybe as the mainstream society might in some ways be getting tougher but on the other hand as well we know so much more about the world around us maybe there is less romanticism about a certain way of you know traveling off into the distance or whatever but you know so does it has it affected things in some ways it's made it a lot harder to be on the road and some of that is about kind of policy and it's about kind of not just i mean we've tried not to mention almost the police crime sentencing and courts bill which will is just sort of sailing through parliament and will outlaw um any kind of what you know, we call trespass and that sounds like a bad thing but that the way that it will mean is that there's any sort of even if you go to a park that's not being used, you are a criminal now. Um, and so, or will be when it goes through. And that's criminalizing something that isn't necessarily doing any harm to anybody. Now, and people say, oh, but those people there, um, some of them are doing, you know, antisocial behavior or they're littering or they're whatever, they're keeping us up late. But those things are already crimes. Uh, and so this is only criminalizing people who are also causing no issue. So that those that's part of the kind of problem. The laws are getting stricter and it's harder and harder to kind of get an education if you're nomadic. Now, when I was a kid, they used to send out a little pack 
with you. So you'd, you'd spend some of the year on the, in the school. And then when you weren't there, they'd send a pack. And there used to be teachers that would come out onto the grounds and chat to us and kind of see how we were doing and make sure that we were working, you know, if, if there was stuff or anything. And that all got cut under David Cameron. And so there are very few um, of those teachers now. And it used to be possible for if I was staying somewhere for two weeks, for me to plug into the local school for two weeks. And that just isn't possible now with how uh, admissions works. Mm -hmm. And so actually my little sister, for example, has a less opportunity of education than I had. Mm -hmm. So there's so much around that that's getting worse. But your question around like, is, is there a, a will to go off and do it? I think there's still very much a romantic kind of mm -hmm. nonsense. It's fun. I say that there are usually two opinions of us in the media. And one is like dirty thieving scumbags, uh, murderers, rioters, whatever. Or it's like magical pixies that yeah. live in the forest <laughs> and they might they'll read your palm and they'll grant wishes. And there's no actual humanity in either of those portrayals. No. But no. if you yeah, so if you Google uh, gypsy you will either get one of those things. And yeah, yeah, if you go on Etsy or Tumblr or something, <laughs> you type in Gypsy, you'll get a lot of like really cack, like they almost make my skin crawl, like um, graphics and art about like wandering barefoot and free and rah, rah, rah. And there is a sense of like, oh, wouldn't that be marvelous? And so people want that. People want that image because it's survived long after it actually looks anything like that. So if you want that sense of, oh, I could just be a wandering gypsy, I'm a gypsy soul. If only I could wander off and just like live free and take go where my heart takes you, which obviously it's never looked actually like that because no, no one's, it sort of suggests that you've got no problems at all. So, you know, but even so, the fact that that's needed shows that people want an alternative mm -hmm. to what's mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there is also a growing, like, there are growing alternatives. There are, as you've said, sort of more housing co-ops and there are more like spaces that are kind of more off-grid that are becoming popular. But people are disaffected, but they don't tend to join us. I mean, very rarely does someone start running a fair because it's sort of a lot of outlay and it's a lot, it's quite hard to start doing. So you tend to normally, it is usually a bit of a family affair. Now, new travellers, sort of uh, a group that you, it's probably easier to join, that and narrowboats, but it's still a lot of outlay. And it's a lot of like, I would know, even though I don't live in a trailer anymore, uh, <laughs> if you told me, Tyler, for whatever reason, gun to your head, you've got to tomorrow, it wouldn't matter at all to me. It'd be fine, sure. sure. But if you've never done it, like there'd be things that you just missed, you'd, you'd fuck up this, that, and the other. And there's a kind of, there's a lot of barriers to it. So people want something about that. And there's a kind of need for an alternative to what the horrible system is at the moment, clearly. And I can understand that if I was sort of from a family of like massive, massive poverty, and I didn't feel like I had any like say in it, and I was just in the middle of a council estate in, like, I don't know, Luton or something, and I wasn't having a great time, and I hated my school, and I hated my upbringing, of course, a bit of me would probably say, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could Get just take of off and live off grid and not be part of this system? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But 
like it doesn't have to be nomadism, but I think it's that's quite a, like a visual that's easy to hook mm -hmm. onto. Of like, yeah. God, what if I didn't even have to live in one place? Yeah. Um, are there any that you can think of, like tangible kind of success stories, perhaps from slightly more recent times, so that people can relate to them, of just where like traveller communities have have actually challenged something and made headway like maybe a local authority has changed some of its you know restrictions on land maybe a private landlord has gone oh I happen to have this space do, do stay on it if you will or you know where, where some kind of maybe even policy has been changed or you know it may be more the activism side of what you do like are there examples um or, you know is that even something you guys try and do or are you just a bit like right we'll move on if this place doesn't want us or do you do you do you fight for things in terms of like a specific like oh in this town this happened i think that it's not very useful to get into but what we often get is like like with us my family as i mentioned and our little village and our getting our site fast because there are no council sites for showmen because we need too much space for our lorries and things so they're all private but they're a nightmare to get past with the things i've said but because we have a name a hatwell name mean something in that area it was easier but that takes that took hundreds of years to build up the Hatwell name in that area and it was still a slog so but it does it's I think it's like with any big system sometimes you feel like it's a bit futile to fight like the the bill or to fight the current um just what the planning laws look like but if I've been coming here for generations and generations, then there are individuals that are sympathetic that you tend to be able to link into. And like you said, yeah, there are certain landowners who will kind of say, all right, fine, well, you know, you can stay on here for a couple of weeks and it's, it's okay. And it's about, I think that everybody kind of, it's almost like that's the reason that nomadism has survived so far because mm -hmm. all the common land kind of isn't really there anymore. And, different places that used to be options you know, been built upon or what have you but the fact of us kind of personal being personable and making those connections in the local areas that we're in and saying that oh yeah can we just if you got somewhere you know we've got there's a farmer that we used to take the fun fair to a place called chipping camden and we needed a place to put the that's a street fair so there's nowhere to put the caravans but we became friends, I don't know, it was probably in the pub one night, I'm sure. Dad became friends with a local farmer. And he said, oh, why don't you put the trailers in here? And then, you know, we, we now do that for that fair. And I think every family that does live in a nomadic way will have like, oh, well, that's the man that we get the water up. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. So mm -hmm. it's almost not a big policy change that sure. we, you know, but obviously that's what we need. But the thing that you do to survive is you, you know, chat that barmaid to let her run a wire out to your trailer so you don't have to run the generators at night or whatever and those are kinds of the things that end up working um and it's sort of it's a shame that that's how it has to work but i think that also that's kind of almost what the skill is of being a traveler like there's so many physical skills obviously but the thing of being able to in some ways ingratiate yourself to at least some enough of the community to survive there for a bit and so, Tyler, for anyone listening um, who is either just maybe 
maybe just feel strongly about like um, land justice, access to land, or perhaps just literally is feeling like a sense of like inspiration or sympathy or whatever towards like traveler communities for the average person out there, like what can they do if they want to support this cause, whatever this cause um, kind of is, but you know, what can people do? Like, I mean, you've spoken here just about, I guess, individual acts of humanity, individual yeah. acts of compassion, the average person just going fine, I'm not gonna have an issue with the traveler community rocking mm. up around the corner from me. That's perhaps a very human thing, right? But what would, if there's something you could ask of people listening, what would it be? Well, I, I often say that the, what we face, whilst we do face a bit of malice from people and those comments on the article, the thing that is a real issue is the ignorance. And people are mostly, the problems that we face are because people either don't even think of us when they're writing a policy. And so it doesn't include, you know, the person that wrote the policy about school admissions wasn't trying to exclude us, but they didn't think about us when they were writing it. Mm -hmm. And then we aren't in it. Mm -hmm. And equally, you know, the stereotypes that exist or the kind of lack of understanding of what it means to be a traveler uh, are then what causes things to be built in a way that makes it inaccessible for us or, you know, bits of land to be used in a way that means that we can't use it. And so really, it's about kind of an amplification of the voices and an amplification of the issues and saying if you work in an organization why don't we get in some training about how to be more inclusive to travelers in the way that you do for all not all but you know, lots of other kind of edi and that all those kinds of things about how do we include this group and that group and just get a sense of you know what am i doing so that either you yourself if you're in a position where you're making these kinds of decisions that inadvertently are excluding us or the person that is making that decision if you kind of bring that to their awareness perhaps next time they will either do the right thing anyway or think oh i might reach out to traveler pride or i might reach out to friends families and travelers and ask um what you know whether there's something else i could do and we're more than happy to kind of come in and give trainings or we're more than happy to like look over policies that you've drafted and say like oh is there anything about this that would inadvertently be exclusionary what can we do differently and there's a lot of kind of will out there but most people don't even think of us mm -hmm. and that not only leads to kind of negative prejudice around oh yeah oh god they must all be awful because i read about it in the mail and the sun um but also yeah it just means that we're completely excluded from the conversation I mean, I'm sure when people when people were first talking about this issue, about the land rights movement in general, when that first happened, I'm sure people didn't think to include travellers in it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it's nice to see that more and more places are saying, oh, like, what's the story? But to get that happening, you have to have heard of us. And lots of people haven't. And I get asked loads of like really obvious questions about, well, how'd you do that? Or is it like this? And rah, rah. But I'm not angry about it because I know that it's not your fault that you've never heard of it because yeah, you know, we're never represented on the telly or in films. Or, you know, when's the last film you saw that had a showman character in it or a man that lived on a narrow boat or something like that? It doesn't yeah, it's happen. not like a Disney film or something, yeah. Hmm. Um, so Tyler, we, we ask this, um, you know, coming to an end, but we ask this of everyone who appears on this podcast, when, if ever, 
do you think your work will no longer be needed? I think a lot of what we do is hold space for voices that aren't being heard and for people that don't feel like they fit in in other spaces. And listening to the community, the world that exists rather than trying to create what it feels like the policies that are coming out now are about what we what we want Britain to look like rather than what Britain looks like and how we can do that better. And it, do, it feels like it's, it's more ideo dogmatic and ideological than it is pragmatic. Um, and I would prefer a sense of like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what we want or what's, where are we today? Um, and what should that look like? But I, it feels as if politics has got a lot less pragmatic and a lot more kind of, you know, here's what we should do, uh, you know, make America great again, mm. blah, 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 you know, Brexit, get Brexit done without a sense of kind of, well, why don't we just take stock for a minute and see what the problems are? Because there are millions of problems that aren't looked at because instead there's a sense of like, kids aren't disciplined enough. So we need to do this to the GCSE system without looking at the problem. So I think it requires a step back that I don't know if, if we're mature enough to do at the moment. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I very rarely see someone in the public eye that says anything even vaguely as nuanced as that. I don't think I'm particularly clever at saying anything <laughs> wise. I just think that it's way harder to sell anything with nuance than it is to sell, Absolutely. you know, get the bastards out or Absolutely. like, let's, let's tear this down or let's build this thing. Yeah. Um, it's such a hard sell. So in contrast to Mona, this week I'm speaking to Sam, who in many ways I found has quite a similar experience to me as someone living in the diaspora. They are an organic writer and grower and organiser and a member of Land In Our Names, which is a black and people of colour collective that are working towards land reparations in Britain. And to do that, they work within the intersections of racial justice, land justice, food justice and climate justice. So sort of that Venn diagram where all of these things overlap. They're interested in liberation through healing and building resilient communities and how access to land and nature are key to this. So it was also a pleasure to sit down with Sam and listen to their experiences and how they intersect with and differ from my own. My parents and my family background is very much like a history of movement and also of land in a way that like through empire, the British empire went on to like own uh, the lands of places like Sri Lanka, which is where my grandfather's from and places like Jamaica, which is where my parents grew up and my mum's um, ancestors grew up in and then through like colon colonialism in Africa the um this transatlantic slave trade how that you know my ancestors were moved from um forcibly from West Africa to the Caribbean and then but then this other part where like my grandfather moved from Sri Lanka to Britain and then from Britain to Jamaica and so I feel like when I think about movement it's like how things like empire or things like colonialism can 
cause uh, people to move uh, from different lands. It's incredibly interesting because I think your personal sort of story and history is symbolic of many um, black and brown histories um, in the UK in the sense that um, our other guest that we're talking to in this episode is from the traveller community uh, where movement is sort of part of their chosen culture and lifestyle in a way. Um, they choose to move from place to place but we know that for many sort of black communities movement has often been somewhat forced at least in recent history so or coerced or even based on some sense of false promise um, and you've spoken about some of those things there's slavery colonialism forced migration even due to like climate or war um, and then even more recently there's things like gentrific gentrification which are forcing people to move um, I was wondering actually I mean you've shared some of your personal story there but whether you could share a bit with the audience about sort of in that notion of how you've described movement there, sort of the historic and current relationship between Black people specifically and land and movement? Right now, we're at a time where we're really acknowledging the Windrush generation, that generation of people who um, migrated to Britain after the World War II to help rebuild the country and so on. But then uh, the different obstacles that they faced as well like coming to London for example the fact that so many were faced with uh, racism meant that they ended up having to live in parts of the city where which would be considered slums for like extremely uh, expensive rents like that was places like Notting Hill or Brixton or um, parts of East London like Hackney and so on and then now we think of these places like Notting Hill especially has like been so changed so much over the past few decades that it's now seen as like a very wealthy area. And then places like Hackney and Brixton are experiencing that gentrification at the moment. And then historically, I guess as well, if we think about the way that colonialism happened in West Africa is that Africa was quite late to be colonized. You know, it happened mostly in the 19th century. And a lot of people like um, really wanted to penetrate the heart of Africa. It was like this very weird, creepy sort of imagery that was always being conjured up, like this like very uncontrollable land. And then the way that the British and other countries like um, France or um, Germany or even like the Danish and so on went about it is that through things like trade, through working with um, different uh, rulers and so on but then you know like really trying to destabilize and put people against each other and then also buying buying slaves for that as uh, that were you know prisoners of war for example or like people who were just captured and also just kidnapping people as well, which is the narrative we hear a lot too, which is really horrible and really violent and like being torn from your land. And for a lot of people, and I think a lot of cultures, especially like Yoruba cultures and so on, like your connection to the land is such an important part of your sense of being and identity. And then to be taken from that land and then to be forcibly moved to like a foreign place that you have no connection with and you know like if you die and then you can't be buried in your village that was like a massive loss for a lot of people 
and I think that relationship of like I feel like that loss is something that even our generations feel now that you know we've lost the language we've lost the others like really knowing what our roots are like are we Ga are we Yoruba are we Igbo are we you know like what is our ancestry what is our ethnicity and there was a lot of mixing as well like because languages were um your different indigenous languages were like banned for a lot of enslaved workers it meant that people had to create new languages and that's why we have all these different patois and so on but then people just didn't um didn't have the opportunities to connect as much with like people who were of the same um, ethnicity or so on. And like, sadly as well, it's like, feels like quite dark <laughs> to talk about this, but like a lot of enslaved peoples had to like, basically breed, you know, they were didn't get to choose their partners sometimes, or even if they did, their children might be taken away from them. And so there was like children being sold off and like, you just lost that connection to your family who might have taught you some things too. But through that, there's like this beautiful thing that happened in the Caribbean where, there's this fusion of all these different cultures from like the indigenous peoples who were there and like some of them did survive the awful um colonization of like Christopher Columbus and so on to like mix with like runaway slaves like who became maroon communities and you know then there was also indentured laborers who were also forcibly <laughs> moved from places like China or India and like there's like in the Caribbean anyway, there's this huge mixture of different cultures and cuisines and languages so that it's a new way of connecting to the land happens, you know, like Jamaican people, I'm Jamaican, you know, we're very proud about like all the different fruits and vegetables and animals and plants and so on that grow there. And then, you know, like proud of like how tall like the mountains are and things like that and like have this relationship to the land and like even having, you know, because of colonialism also limited like how how um, empowered or emancipated people could be in terms of like, you know, establishing themselves, like if they could have enough money or um, like their own house or like a stable like access to education and things like that so then a lot of people ended up moving to the UK which is through the wind rush you know and like seeking better opportunities and a lot of them have like maybe really negative perceptions of what the Caribbean is like and the Caribbean after independence is very different from how it was before independence and the relationships of people to the land to themselves to the culture is very different because under like the British Jamaica like Jamaican education system was just learning about Britain you know you weren't learning about the history of the land but then after independence you learn about all the different people who came there and like the different ways that they shaped that island and I think you know like in the UK we don't learn about our history here you know we don't learn about our history anywhere like learning about empire is not in the curriculum anymore you know learning and even when it was in the curriculum, it was optional, right? So like, I feel like that's the other thing about like black people, like my experiences of being black and mixed in this country was like not learning about like why I'm here or why any black people or people of color are here. Like what, what, how, how did we all end up here? And what happened between Windrush and now, you know? Like what's, and then because of that, so many of us don't have that connection to the land. And so many of us don't have that relationship to this place because we feel like we don't belong. 
but when there's so many historians who have been doing research now and there are so many records of black and people of color being in Britain, being in rural spaces as well as in cities, you know, like we've been here since the Romans, you know, so like it's it's a complicated thing because it's sort of like we're, you know, you don't really want to belong here because English history anyway is quite dark in a lot of ways. It's right, like especially if you're a racialized person, it feels like so much of it has been about like your people being like used and harmed and violated. But then also like that that's not all of the history. The history is also of the people. Like there's been so many stories of um, resistance that's that's still part of the land you know and like the peasant revolts and all of this stuff that's still part of the land and like I feel like in a way working class people and people of color and women and other marginalized people have like lost their connection to the land because it's been like cut off by those stories not being told this is a, that was a very long answer <laughs> no, um, it's, it's it's so important and actually I do want to ask a little bit more about a sense of belonging and how that relates to to land and access to land but quickly before we do that I just want to pick up on one thing you said about um, people being torn from land because to me I think one of the things that's interesting is that dual notion of land as physical space and then land as community so would you say that in your opinion all humans belong to like a physical space a specific physical space or is it a sense of belonging to sort of like, I guess, nature in general? So, because one of the things I think about, obviously being forcefully removed from land has had all of the impacts that you've spoken about there. Um, but also things like nomadism and um, movement and everything was part of quite a lot of traditional cultures. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to explore that notion a little bit, whether humans are attached to physical space of land or whether it's more your relationship with nature that, kind of it's more that could be anywhere if that makes any sense to you yeah totally and I think it's something I've thought about a lot because having moved um like countries when I was little and then even when I was living in London we moved houses a lot like I think something I've always felt a loss of was like a connection to a specific geographical space like I don't have like a childhood home or things like that so like that's something I always envied in people and I feel like I have some friends and like some people in my life who have like this deep political spiritual connection to a specific space and like I think that's like something that maybe is really um like as old as our like human beings like history but then also I feel like that nomadic side like the fact that we move around as well is also like a big part of what it means to be human too to desire um not even to desire but I think like staying in one place isn't like uh it's it's not sustainable in a way because landscapes change places change you know like floods happen or droughts happen like there's reasons why human beings have moved in the ways that we've moved and I think um as you were saying like I think yeah maybe that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing or I'm drawn to like food growing and to things like that because I feel like um this deep desire to connect to nature to connect to land and regardless of where it is because I feel like that's something I didn't really 
have as many opportunities to do and I feel like if you can't have that relationship of being like attached or like having really strong roots to a specific geography then like maybe the other thing that you can do is like the other ways that you can connect is to like just be connected to like other than humans you know to be connected to land like wherever that is so what do you think being part of the diaspora of or being separate from I guess your ancestral homeland has done for communities you spoke a lot about sense of belonging and the loss of cultures and traditions and I know a big part of that for example is language and I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things I'm always saying to my parents is I really I'm happy that um, I was given a name that reflects my heritage but for example loss of language I think really and I see that amongst lots of my peers and friends it's something that disempowers us so much because then I can't pass that on to my children and then that is just lost permanently you know um, and then there's other things that have maybe traditionally been passed down like spirituality how to connect to the land how to grow your own food all of this knowledge that has sort of been lost as communities have increasingly shall I say, embraced a different culture in the West. So yeah, what do you think that movement from homeland has done to diasporic communities in terms of their knowledge and their ability to connect to land? There's this writer and ecologist, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer of Ashkenabi ancestry, which is uh, like one of the like native nations in North America and she talks about that like not learning the language and that loss and then how in that language it's like they don't have that many nouns like while English is like a language that has like a lot of nouns so things are just objects you know they're like the way that we relate to it is just like an object to be handled to use you know to have things done onto it while in Ashkenabi like he wouldn't say like oh that's a river it's like that's being a river or like so much of how the language interacts with the world is through being through like the shared sense of being right and I think that's something I think about a lot with language like having being from Jamaica as well where English is the language like the national language and people speak Patwa as well but then um so much of like what you read and how you interact with the world is shaped by like this um worldview and I think that's like a that means it just feels at times limiting because I feel like the way I relate to the world and the way I see the world is shaped by that and so I think that is like a loss that a lot of like diaspora maybe feel and I feel like it feels sometimes futile like you feel like oh yeah what can I how can I really break out of this one way of seeing things and how can I really understand like other perspectives towards like other living creatures or the land or whatever that isn't rooted in like this like the ways that you know Brit the British Empire and Western European like society or cultures have related to non-human beings you know which is like this is this is mine to use this is oh it's just like uh who cares about this river we can just put anything in it you know like that's their mentality and like how much of that is rooted in the language how much of that is rooted in like the philosophies of um that have shaped like this society or this culture um and then I feel like you know what you were saying about um being like of from like a diasporic like 
community and you know when you come to like the UK it's like a lot of people have probably come from very rural spaces in the Caribbean for example and then they come to the UK and then you're living in a city and cities are really intense and really not great for your nervous system and so on there's so much beautiful because like that's beautiful things about cities too because like that's you know there's music there's cultures different cultures different languages that you're exposed to like lots of like London has some of the best food in the world you know like and has food from everywhere and like it's like a really exciting place to be but like whether it's very good for relaxing us or like it's like a place that you come to heal like in some ways maybe but then in a lot of ways you know being able to be around forests and in green spaces and being around lakes and the sea like these are scientifically and psychologically proven to be good for your mental health which is just shocking that we even needed to prove that but then these are places that have been for a long time um exclusive like exclusionary to like uh people who don't fit within the ideas of like who is deserving to be in the countryside right and like I think what's happened with in Britain as well is that like less and less people are living in rural spaces more and more people are living in cities and the people who can afford to live in some of the most beautiful parts of the country or in the in like the rural parts of the country like they don't want it to be open <laughs> they don't want to also reckon with the history of like these places like what funded the enclosures the clearing of forests and so on and like the the transformation of like communal or commons into like private land and you know the pushing off of peasants into like um off their land where they were growing food like what funded that and also what funded these great country estates you know where did that money come from and so much of it came from colonialism and so much came from the wealth made in like India and the Caribbean listening to what you're saying I want to explore then what does existence look like in an ideal world you're part of a group called Lion that advocates for the reclaiming of land and I really really want to explore how and where that can happen, um, what sort of ideas and theories and approaches you um, have for that. Is it sort of physically or forcefully taking land? Is it sort of occupying and squatting? Uh, you spoke about reparations earlier, like what does, or is it like um, the grouping together to purchase land? Like this is a really exciting concept to me. So yeah, I wanna hear more about what you advocate for. The people who, hoard land in this country are also the people who hoard power a lot of them are people who like inherited this land and their money and their wealth for like centuries you know their generations and generations of people who have like always been like you know the the aristocrats you know and then the other side of that then there's like big companies and big um like you know or even uh like the ministry of defense or things like that where it's like oh like there's so much land that's actually just military training grounds or like you know national trust and things like that which is you know maybe that's not a bad thing but it's also like what do we want do we want to have like these islands of like places where things are conserved like you know looking after like the ecology and like plants and um animals and 
excluding people and then we have like these really intense like very polluted like residential areas and so on you know like we need to learn how to live with nature and like through having so much land like enclosed and like kept away from people people lose the opportunity to learn about nature to heal their relationship to land so like when I think about land justice it's like I think of it as we need to be able to connect to like non-human beings to connect to land for our own well-being and for you know climate justice or for racial justice or all these things because majority of these landowners are people who have benefited from um, white supremacy benefit in white supremacy and like are some of the perpetrators of extreme forms of racial violence and so on and they also have a lot of political power too so like so much of what lion believes with like land justice is that if we get land into like black and people of color's hands we'll be able to like actually build a sustainable resilient movement because we will have space we will have space to breathe to rest to organize to grow food for our communities to um learn about nature to like repair like our ecosystems and ecologies and the fact is that for so long we've just felt so powerless because the people who control all of this land are not interested in um the well-being of this world or the people here they're just looking after themselves and we just believe that no one should own millions and millions of acres everyone should be able to have enough space to live comfortably to have access to nutritious and delicious food to be able to like explore and learn about nature and plants how we go about this is something that we're still figuring out like we have we get donations which is really great and this is a massive thank you to all our supporters and we are trying to put some of that money aside to buy land because it's very hard to um, squat in this country anymore. <laughs> um, but I also really support people if that's what they want to do. And if that's what they, if that's how they achieve land justice, I think that's important too. We need to embrace all these different ways of working towards liberation. And I think some of it will be direct action. Some of it will be through legal means. Some of it will be a bit of mixture of both, you know, like, and I think for us to get, like, sadly, land, like the landlords in this country are incredibly feudal and it can be a bit depressing. Like, how can we actually have like a collectively owned um, land pro project? Um, and that's something I'm really interested in learning more about, especially when there are so many barriers to people being able to own land and access land, but like own it in a way that actually feels like transformative and not just operating within like the same system. Like we need to actually change how um, land is seen. It's not like, oh, this is my land or if Lion eventually goes on to own like some land, like it wouldn't just be like, okay, this is our asset, like where then, you know my children and will then inherit or something like that would be awful like what we would really want is for it to actually be like uh, a space of that can be like towards liberation that can be towards like uh, actually dismantling you know like white supremacy and capitalism and all of these things that you know just like step by step closer towards like our goals
I think it was really powerful there how you sort of demonstrated, explained, showed people the importance of space um, in organizing. Uh, I came from a background of media and one of the first things that I learned when I started speaking to working with, working for grassroots organizations is the importance of space as both a security and freedom. Um, and actually with Untelevised, one of the first organizations we ever worked with or spoke to was Granville Community Kitchen because they were um, going to be kicked out of their space, uh, Dee and Leslie there. Um, and yeah, the importance and power in having that space, um, not necessarily ownership, like you say, in the traditional sense of an asset and something that's making us money or anything, but just in the security that we're able to have uh, the freedom then to operate how we wish to outside of systems um, if we have that physical space. Um, so yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate, again, the honesty in um, not necessarily coming with all the answers and the experimentation and often in that experimentation um, is when solutions are found or creative ways of being are found, etc. So that's, yeah, that's really cool for me. And talking of that organizing, um, obviously organizing within black and brown communities has a long, long history. I mean, you were speaking about people being forced to live in slums in places like Brixton and Notting Hill that are now, you know, you'll be lucky to get a place for a million pounds. And it, it made me think <laughs> actually my grandma, where um, when she first came over from West Africa, obviously we've all heard about the signs, no blacks, no dogs and things like that. And one of the ways that she was able to live was by clubbing together with people and buying a home. And it's so funny because the places they were able to buy were Clapham and Balham, and those houses are now, again, <laughs> worth, you know, millions of pounds. But at the time, it was only through coming together that they were even able to mm -hmm. afford places that were undesirable. Yes, I wanted to speak about sort of the idea of organising, community organising, um, being revolutionary and radical and all of these things, and try and understand from you what some of the things that are happening in sort of the modern modern day, modern society, a few, some decades on from that time when people were first arriving, how has how organising sort of evolved from that time? What are some of the ways that people are coming together and organising now? Because one of the things I'm quite conscious of is there's a lot of narrative of separation um, and the idea that our communities are quite fractured, but what I witness is a lot of collaboration, solidarity. So yeah, just wanted to speak to someone that's in those spaces about some of the things that are happening. What you're talking about with space is just like really reminding me of why it's so important to have space because I think what we're experiencing, we're like probably at one of the most stressful times to like live in London um, because there's so few like community spaces around, like so many like community centers have been shut down. And like, that's the whole thing with like the gentrification thing, like that being displaced and never really knowing oh, I'll live in this house for the year, but I don't know where I'm going to be next year. So it's really hard to like really get to know your community, to like get to invest in a space and like to really like do a lot of sustainable organizing. And that's why it's so amazing when um, places like Granville Community Kitchen can like stay and like have fought to stay and like other community spaces manage to hold on um, in times like this. And it's what's really great with Granville Community Kitchen is that they actually have some land which are going to start farming now. It's like really exciting, really amazing. And, you know, that's like just just a bit north of London. And like that's I don't know, that's really um, to me, really 
uh, important and I think I do agree I do think that there's a lot of collaboration a lot of communication a lot of like really transformative work happening there too but also like how we're thinking about care and rest and like I feel like what would a lot of activism you know you're running in like these cycles of like burnout and hyper productivity and reactivity and I think what I'm the type of organizing that I'm used to is actually just not even like campaign work and things like that like I find campaign work really um, hard but like when I'm thinking about like dreaming and like creating something with like more creative work where it's not just like oh something's happened we need to respond to this quickly and I don't even think that's like a bad form of like organizing but like we also need to like build our own infrastructures and build our own systems and like create something new and I definitely feel like that's happening there's so many other groups and then whether they're working in climate justice like wretched of the earth or they're doing things around abolition like you know not relying on police and like you know challenging how useful prison systems are you know like um there's so many really amazing groups and then there's all these groups that are doing like supporting organizing groups like resist to renew which is all about like you know trying to train us up with to create those alternative structures and systems that we need to actually function so that when we have a conflict we don't just fall apart and i feel like there's like so many really exciting anti-racist groups are coming up looking at whether it's about like having more therapy therapists or like just connecting to nature or um decolonizing the garden or like horticulture i feel like there's so much coming up and that everyone's organizing in different ways and some people are focusing more on content creation some people on like research some people on direct action organizing protests and some people on just like healing and rest and I think I definitely feel like I'm meeting people who are really excited by things like unions and workers rights and trying to figure out how do we work somewhat horizontally how do we work without needing unjust hierarchies and how do we work in a way that isn't just reproducing the same harms that we're fighting against and I definitely feel like there's so many different groups and so many different people just coming together connecting and I think the internet really helps in that way but some a negative side of that is sometimes I feel like we could get a bit trapped in the world of the internet and forget to like remember that there's there's people outside you know like what are we making what are we building just because people aren't paying attention to us right now because we're not like interesting to the news right now doesn't mean that we're not doing anything and I think yeah I feel really excited in that way and like there's this really amazing building called House of Veneta which is sort of like a land reform land justice social center that's being set up it's like this very dilapidated building in Shoreditch it's right next to Brick Lane so they do a lot of work with the Save Brick Lane campaign which is against the Truman Brewery development which is to make a shopping center which I just feel like is so pointless. I'm like, do we need a shopping center there where there's so many shops? Um, and yeah, and it's, it's, it's really important to support them. Um, and yeah, House Veneta has lots of really amazing groups um, collaborating with them and artists. And um, there's like Tati, which is a Bangla woman's canteen. And then there's Shed Assets who are work, a think, think and do tank, 
um, <laughs> for like land justice stuff and like um, we do things for them in their garden and events and so on and um, yeah and they're they're really great and I think it's really important to have like a space like that that you can use for free um, in central London because there's so few of them so I'm really excited to see how how we can reclaim land and space together. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that because um, from sort of the outset, in fact, the reason we started the podcast series is because we often were having conversations around the marathon versus the sprint and the fact that sort of the micro and the macro need to happen in unison and together and maybe different people fit different roles within that. Um, but we need to be conscious that the marathon still needs to exist whilst the sprint actions like the visible things are happening um and then increasingly with our conversations with people at least I have been learning a lot about the joy in activism and resistance because I think I came to it quite burnt out and quite like heavy as in like not that it was a burden but that it was just quite an a hard space to be in but actually I've been increasingly learning that there's so much joy in just resisting in itself so yeah what you're saying I, I would completely agree with I just want to pass a bit of a curveball by you before we sort of get to our more conclusionary questions my mother's from Ghana my father's from Nigeria and something that really interested me in the last few years was Ghana um, in 2019 they declared it the year of return um so I believe it was to commemorate the four, 400th year since sort of the first slave ship left Africa um, and they invited all of the diasporic communities to sort of return to Africa or return to Ghana and um, I think they even maybe gave citizenship to some people and things like that and it just made me think in the context of land movement, belonging to land, all of the conversations that we're having that I wanted to ask you what you think of the idea of returning to sort of motherlands, to ancestral lands, um, versus trying to build or claim on the lands that we are in now, the diasporic spaces. Um, I know at the same time, yeah, quite a lot of second and third generation people are actually deciding to move back, maybe to countries they've never been to or they weren't born in. Um, and I mean, even I'm not sure how I feel. I think I think, yeah, I think there's things on both sides. And I'm conscious that as people maybe that have even were born and brought up in the West, that we might bring certain ideologies and things to lands that aren't even our own. But I won't answer my own question. I'll pass it on to you to answer. I think it's such an interesting um, topic. Uh, like, wasn't there like loads of African-Americans who went to like Liberia and um how that has affected that country too where like there's this very big like class division of, you know because like a lot of the african-american people were like you know middle class and like had like some level of wealth and you know like how that can end up perpetuating harms too right and i'm actually going to jamaica for like six months at the end of this year um and like I love this because I want to like go back and like just connect to this place where I was born and like have a like relationship with it as an adult and I think it is really important for like I would really love to visit like Ghana and stuff I don't know how much I would feel comfortable personally settling there but I feel like you know if you actually like what I think of if you're going to live anywhere, if you're going to go anywhere, you have to connect to the people there. You can't just go and expect people to change for you or like places to change for you. You actually have to have a relationship 
with the land, with the communities there, with the people there and really like connect to that. Otherwise, why are you there? You're just colonizing like anyone, like, and you could do that anywhere. You could like, that's just support, that's just gentrification in this country, you know, it's colonization in like another country in a way. So I feel like it's like, it's the important thing to me is like, if you want to form a relationship with like these different countries or places, you know, you, you just have to go and like really question like your own privileges because while you might not be privileged in Britain because of like racism or whatever, you will be privileged in like um, West Africa or in the Caribbean or whatever because of the fact that you've had access to certain opportunities or resources that a lot of people haven't because you grew up in one of the richest countries in the world, right? And so, I don't know, this is just something like, I think it's a really complicated thing because I feel like we, a lot of people of the diaspora have like this longing, this longing to feel like, find a home, to find a place where like, you know, you don't have to experience racism. That's not your like everyday reality. And, but I think that you probably will just encounter other hardships. And like, I think it's just like important to like, just be really self-aware of like what you're doing when you go somewhere. And like, if you're just gonna go to another country so that you can act like a, like white people there or whatever like that's not like that's not that's not worth it to me um but I think it is really hard I would love to know what you think yeah I think I have much of the same thoughts as you um I definitely agree with that the notion that we can essentially become what we're fighting against in a different space um because even despite the fact that we are conscious of it and might criticize it, it is still part of the way of life that we become accustomed to, I'll, put, I'll say it like that. And also I'm, I'm hyper-conscious that I think people romanticize certain things quite a lot and they have no, I mean, myself included, they have no real, outside of maybe holidays, short trips, no real um, lived experience. I'm conscious of that as well. Um, some of the difficulties we've already spoken about around language and all of these things that I think would make it quite difficult, but it's definitely something that I have been considering and thinking about and trying to understand my um, my sort of thoughts around, uh, because I very much resonate with what you ended on, which is the sense that wanting to experience um, life as, a human rather than my identities if that makes any sense so um I always say that I think one of the greatest white privileges is just being as yourself <laughs> you can enter any space and you're just whoever you are rather than I'm a black woman like not having all of those things on your shoulders you know but again I'm not sure that necessarily if I lived in Ghana I would be stripped of the all of those things because white supremacy, all of these ideologies are global, you know, they're not rooted necessarily in the West, even if the experiences are more, more apparent. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's something I'm still figuring out myself, but I, I thought in this context, it would be interesting because yeah, whenever I'm thinking of sort of ownership or claiming space or all of these things, I'm wondering whether I want to do that here or whether I want to try and build sort of reverse the chain of events that have happened before us, I guess. And I mean, similarly, I know a lot of our ancestors when they first came here, they never thought it would be a permanent decision. Um, <laughs> so it's also interesting to have those conversations with them. I know most of my aunties 
my grandma, they all, whenever they get money, they start building houses back home and <laughs> rather than like building something here, you know, and they still hold on to that notion that ultimately that's where they'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my parents are going to move back to Jamaica, actually. Yeah, so, like, I think I think it's also it's just hard to really set roots here. Like, it's really hard, especially if you migrated here and stuff like that. Like, it's not, like, an easy country to then just, like, make your home, especially if you're Black or racialized in some way. So, like, and, like, the land is probably, like, a lot cheaper and, like, a lot more beautiful and um, rich than you know a lot of Britain right so like I feel like I definitely understand that desire and it's like I I often wonder I'm like where where do I where will I like set my roots where will I like build a house or something you know so I definitely yeah 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 and even in terms of the things you're speaking about around connection to land like my dad has long said that as soon as he retires he's going back and having a farm in um where he comes from in Nigeria and I'm like okay cool you're just leaving all of us cool but <laughs> also <laughs> like I get it because he's like I'll go there I'll be an elder people will help me I won't be isolated in like a bungalow somewhere yeah. in Surrey where no one visits me at all. and I'll be connected to the land which is what my nature tells me that I should be doing you know it's what I'm used to it's who I am and I can and it will be warm every day I mean <laughs> like there's just so many pool factors that I completely understand um but then even between me and my dad there's massive differences he has language he has certain culture he was born there there's all these things so it's not easy Uh, in that vein we always try and end our episodes on leaving people who may be feeling inspired but slightly overwhelmed by all of the massive topics that we cover with some real practical steps that they can take in their own lives So if people have listened to this and thought, okay, I want to sort of join the fight for land justice, what are some of the things that they might do? What is the first step that they could take either um, to support you in your team of less than five to to, to uplift your organisation and Lion, or just in their own remit, um, something small that people could get started with? Yeah, totally. I feel like if you're someone who is coming into a lot of wealth, like inherited wealth, or you just have like a lot of wealth in general, redistribute that wealth, you know, just like redistribute it. Why, if you like that money is not any more yours than it is anyone. And like, there's a lot of groups, a lot of people, a lot of um, people who don't have access to that and who really need that to work. So like that can mean like donating to them or working with groups like resource justice, you know? So like then working with people who are inheriting wealth to help redistribute that money to like social justice organizations and stuff like that um you can donate money to us if you want <laughs> but um also like if you're in your BPOC and you're wanting to get into land justice wanting to get into food justice and stuff like that start like small get some seeds like sow some seeds apply it I feel like we need to ground ourselves so much and I feel like sometimes we respond with like this urgent like oh I need to do something and I feel like sometimes you just need to slow down like take some time and figure out what are you really interested in what do you really love I think organizing and activism is really important but we also need to skill up and learning how to grow food is a really simple and easy skill to learn you know and then also it's really healing to, and really beautiful to just watch seeds sprout and grow and like you can go and eat them once they fruit or like you know their leaves are big enough 
and I think that's a really magical like place and then also we have like lots of events that we're going to be doing over the next year we've got a an event just all about food and land justice uh, with Wretched of the Earth, a climate justice organization and decolonizing economics. And it'll be all about like um, healing through food and healing through the land. And there'll be more information about that in our mailing list or on our social media. Um, and other ways, I feel like, yeah, just learn a little bit more about the history of British land. You can learn, like, there's Corinne Fowler's book, um, Green Pleasant Land. There's also a lot of really amazing uh, resources and writings by people on, like, Kate Barnstock wrote this thing about um, the rural idyll for Galdem. And then there's, like, Claire Rassiman, who's written some really great stuff, Zakia McKenzie, you know, just learning about it, learning about different histories. So I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm asking for you to, like, just actually rest and ground and see how you can look after yourself and really figure out what do you want to do and a lot of it starts from like just learning and listening I feel like if you're just wanting to feel like I'm doing something so I'm good there are many organizations but I'm coming from a place of like the marathon I guess which is really about like learning to listen to our bodies listen to our hearts and like look after ourselves and really figure out what skills we can develop and a lot of them are actually centering care, like learning how to like look after ourselves and look after each other, because that's what we need when civilization collapses, you know, <laughs> or if it collapses. And that's what we need if it doesn't as well. We need to learn how to actually be good, like friends to each other and build up communities again. So Sam, perhaps my hardest question then, when will your work no longer be needed? We try and ask this to all of our guests and often it's the one that they're like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I would love that. I would love for our work to not be needed. I would love for us to not be the only Black and people of colour land justice like group or like the people that come to mind. I want there to be lots of other like BPOC organising to get on the land, to like reclaim land and where black and people of color feel like empowered to be on the land to, and feel safe being in rural spaces where um, black and people of color are, you know, being able to access um, like non-pesticide, agroecologically grown food um, that's really nu nutritious and delicious I feel like that's the thing like nutrition is one thing but I also want it to be delicious I want to like love every meal I'm eating you know and like I feel like yeah so that's when lion's work will be done and maybe lion won't be around by the time those goals are or like that future is reached and like that's okay to me because I'm like things can change people can change and we're not meant to last forever you know so I'm really looking forward to that time and I hope it comes soon but like until then please like just start start up some more collectives and like groups and um organizations working towards land justice and racial justice and you know like I, I just want there to be more of us you know like the more of us it is the easier it'll be to like get there you know so Mona just like that the end of our first episode um on land uh 
and I hope has proved to people what I've been saying that there's so much to this. What did you think? What stood out? Well, first of all, for me, it it was the fact that I think with a lot of the um, topics we've covered with Untelevised, um, I guess because of the work we both do and the fact that we are discovering these things through our work, I feel like I do have a fair amount of exposure to them already. And I maybe actually do, like, of course, I, you know, you still learn new things, but I feel like I sort of have a fair amount of knowledge going in. And this time, speaking with Tyler, um, even though I don't even consider myself actually too uninformed, I hope, I really did feel that kind of learning about the traveler experience was also really new for me. Um, mm. And it was incredibly insightful. And, you know, some of it fitted what I had assumed and some of it didn't. And it's not that often I feel like I end up interviewing somebody and going, whoa, like I am so having my eyes opened. And that that was really, really exciting. Um, and I had actually only just last year, a friend had given me a book called Chav Solidarity, written by an Irish traveller, um, which I would really, really recommend. Really not a very long book, really accessible read, which was just written in such a raw way um, and, you know, describing a certain life experience and, and really going into what it means to be living on the outside of the systems that we're all so accustomed to and used to. Even if we're trying to fight them, we, we're still very much living by them and what it really means to be living outside of that. And I found that a brilliant book and I'm not that good at finishing books these days, so that was quite a feat for me. Um, but anyway, so I had sort of become quite interested and so to speak with Tyler was... Um, yeah, it was just really exciting. And then at the same time to be like, oh, but you're sort of sitting on Zoom five minutes up the road from me. That was me thinking you were going to be speaking to me from like, I don't know, a field somewhere or something. But yeah, no. Um, so yeah, just educational, I think. Really, truly educational, um, which is a nice place to reach. I think sometimes we can get a bit stagnant. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love the way you describe that as sort of um, exciting and a privilege and because that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. That's how discovering one another and like community and conversation should be. It should excite us. Um, but like you say, often it seems to be received as a challenge when we meet people that are different from us. But I completely agree that it's refreshing to have an experience where you're shocked. I think I might have said it in my intro episode when it was like, meet Viseo. I said, it takes a lot to shock me these days. Being someone who's in London, I feel like I've met everyone. I feel like <laughs> I know everything about everyone. You'd have to literally be like, I don't know, an alien walking on the street for me to be like, whoa. But like you, I learned so much about a community that we don't hear a lot from. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just such a privilege and especially a privilege to learn about it from someone like Tyler, who is so dynamic and full of life and so to the point and straight. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was great to have some insight into that. And actually, funnily enough, this learning and hearing from experience, it was one of the solutions Tyler kind of presented to the quote unquote issue um, that he was facing, right? Yeah, to actually just learn more, understand more, have conversations, like actually go and educate yourself, like recognize, you know, he speaks a lot about how, you know, so little knowledge is held about traveler communities that it's not even as though people are even actively excluding them is that they've not even thought of them to exclude mm. them almost you know mm. it's literally just that they are removed from any consideration when we discuss any social issue or are designing anything in our society and yeah to actually just 
go and find out more. And I guess that's a lot of what the advocacy work that you know he's doing is about, right? So um, yeah, I mean, again, of course, what our aim with this podcast, we hope, is to try and give some of that education in a digestible kind of way, but and give that access. But yeah, having conversation actually literally seemed to be, to be honest, um, at least the, the the takeaway from that interview. Yeah, and I loved what he said on the flip side about how much being that outsider almost has formed who he is and has given him the life skills that he now has. He spoke about how as a kid, because he moved around so much and had to interact with so many different communities, he wasn't afraid of anyone or mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to go to the bank and negotiate, but yeah. also knew how to um, talk to people that were coming to the fair for custom and also knew. And it just made me think actually, when he was speaking about going to university and how shocked he was at how little of those skills many of his peers had mm. when how they shook or when they had to call someone for something or something. It made me actually think about, yeah, actually some of these more, practical social human natural things that we've lost as a society um through this individualistic lifestyle we've been encouraged to live and actually how much benefit that does for us um we've both found ourselves in the same space a university but one of us (laughs) arguably is much more equipped to exist in the world um so yeah I really love the way he put that I can just imagine if a very vivacious little (laughs) I mean and I guess that's the irony actually again of us assuming maybe that that wouldn't be the case because they aren't accessing education a lot of the time in the way that we think you know is, is the way to access it and we actually consider them potentially again you know marginalized disadvantage kind of but actually the resourcefulness that exists in that community and I one thing that really struck me was um when he spoke about how we might actually specifically think that what makes us safe like like physically safe is to shut other people out right Mm. it's gates it's locks it's doors it's all these things that keep us safe whereas actually Tyler was saying what felt safe was how much community there was around. Like actually what made you feel safe was safety in numbers, was not being alone, was thinking, well, that person up the road can help me with this, that person up the road can help me with that. And actually that's where the safety came from rather than if I shut other people out that might harm me, I will be safer. Yeah, and actually that sort of relates to uh, what Sam was saying, not to leave Sam out. (laughs) Um, They were talking a lot also about that, that power of community in helping to ground ourselves, I guess, as people who have historically, rather than actively in the present, been moving from our land. That's sort of where we find community is in finding others like yourself, I guess, in in um, the presence. And I found it really interesting. Um, I think you posed the question or you made the statement is it a privilege to have the choice to move versus being forced to move? Mm -hmm. And it really actually made me stop in my tracks and think, wow, I've never thought of movement as a privilege necessarily, but yeah, um, really valid point and really good sort of provocative um, hypothesis, really. (laughs) Well, yeah, because now for a lot of people, travel is is privilege, right? Exploring the world, like owning a passport takes money. I Mm. I work with young people who don't have passports right now or Mm. haven't been given that right yet. So it it really, it it all again sort of interlinks and actually um, it's not necessarily the act of movement, but but it's the why and and it's kind of what it gives you. And I mean, I really... 
Tyler sort of saying that actually what seems to make so many people almost a bit scared of travelers or or like really sort of like, yeah, kind of uncomfortable around them is just because they're posing such an affront mm. to the lifestyle that people have chosen or like that when people see somebody else doing something so differently, it almost makes them think that their own way of life is being um, challenged, that they're yeah. criticized. It's almost like when you go down the pub and you're not drinking and somebody else is and they just keep being like, but why aren't you drinking? Mm, just drink mm, or, you know, mm, you're not eating mm. meat and people are like, but why? And you're just, just, just leave it be. Like, it's not about you. Yeah, I, I think it's even further than that, isn't it? Because it actually... I think highlights that we haven't chosen the life, <laughs> like through him making an active choice. It Obviously we have, I guess, through omission chosen it, but many people don't actually make choices. They just follow what's mm -hmm, expected mm -hmm. or they just follow a blueprint. And actually it might highlight, wait, that was an option. I I, I never even knew that existed. Yeah. Sort of like, I always think about um, careers advice in school. Sometimes when I see jobs on TV, it would be like, I don't know. Um, goldfish specialist. I'm like, why did no one tell me that I existed? Maybe I wanted to be a goldfish specialist, but I was kind of only told about a very narrow set of jobs, you know? You were suddenly like, oh, that exists and I could have chosen that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is um, really powerful how learning about others teaches us about ourselves and then how we react to that. Um, so how are we going to make this practical? I feel like we've we've gone into a deep, deep dive of um, theoretical there, Mona. <laughs> Some of the practical things, I guess, would then be having those conversations, finding spaces where you can have those conversations. Um, and maybe if that's not accessible as a first step, I'm not suggesting you go to the next fairground with an interview book and start <laughs> asking people questions, then reading, starting in a place of reading, I would say, and um we will link some resources to where you can read and learn about these communities a little bit more in the description. And um, similarly, in a way, like Sam spoke a lot about this idea of upskilling ourselves and how important that actually is. Again, if we're challenging something, if we're trying to rebuild something, everything from maybe very practical and skills like food growing or sort of upskilling ourselves more in terms of organizing or knowledge and sort of political kind of understanding and that that is kind of how we even start to maybe redistribute mm. resources and skill and knowledge and wealth um, and kind of get and you know actually empower those that currently maybe feel that they don't have those things but sort of upskilling not dissimilar to how Tyler said so much skill and resource existed in that alternative way of living um, and how important that is um, for any one of us who now wants to try and challenge the more mainstream way of living yeah that's really valid, actually, because in our definition of reparations, um, I'd always traditionally thought of it as money, but it doesn't have to necessarily be monetary. It is just that redistribution, as you say, and that can be done just through supporting others and giving them a platform, actually. So even if you can't directly do anything yourself, amplifying the voices of marginalised communities is a real active way you can do things. Most of us are in spaces at certain times where we have some form of voice. Maybe look around that room and see who's not there and make sure they're invited to the next one. If you sit on boards, if you're in the management team at work, if you're um, part of the local planning or if there are any spaces where you have the autonomy to include people, I would suggest that might be also a good first step to look who's not there and try and make sure they're invited because I think what Tyler sort of showed us and Sam is that inviting people at the outset is the best way to make sure that um, things don't 
aren't being repaired and are actually just being designed well. Yeah, and um, and I don't know how many super wealthy landowners are kind of yeah. listening to this podcast, but you know what the work that Lion does is 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 actually very much about literally finding and sourcing land that exists mm. that people might actually be wanting to share or redistribute or or welcome other people onto or you know finding a way to again rectify that complete you know in the unequal redistribution of land. So, you know, if you check out what Lion do, then if there are spaces that you in any way have access to, I mean, you can even start small, like the mentality of what do you do with your own space? Like how guarded are you over it? How privately do you use it? Like, is there anything you can do to share maybe even, I mean, where I used to work, May Project Gardens, was literally a community garden built out of the, somebody's own back garden out of the back of a council house. So like quite like a radical act to say, I'm actually going to share the space that everybody else would be putting fences up around and making their own. Mm. Um, it's much, much smaller. But in my place, we've decided to remove the fence between our two gardens with our neighbours and we've made it a community garden. So, you know, it's, sometimes it again, it's just about even like, like Tyler said, it's even just challenging the belief systems mm. that these things have to be this way and that we have to live in such a guarded, individualised way and finding actually safety in not doing it rather than safety in doing it. Um, so, I mean, that is what Sam and Lion's work is very much about, is yeah. actually about finding these spaces and seeing who's on them and who could be on them and should be on them. So, again, you might have access to that check it out get in touch be creative in how you use your space really important because sam spoke a lot about um the importance of having access to that space yeah. as as people that are traditionally excluded from them and or not as an asset but just as a place to organize as a place to come and rest as a place to commune mm-hmm. so yeah if we have, I'm sure we must amongst our listeners have at least one person <laughs> that has access to some land. <laughs> Talk to untelevised at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, next week we will be looking a bit at what it then does mean to belong somewhere once you haven't done. Um, and, um, yeah, we will carry on the conversation there. But, yeah, until then, um, we would, you know, please do follow, subscribe, rate, review um, this podcast. That is the way that it gains traction and that we get to also distribute it um, and reach more people kind of with this learning. Um, and if you want to share any feedback and thoughts, you can over on our Instagram or Twitter, which are both on televised underscore TV. Um, you can always email us at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and it's the digit to um, we really do take your messages and your feedback and we actually try as much as possible to incorporate them into future topics or to respond to them people have suggested topics to us and we've sort of you know actually explored them and taken them on so we really would like to not just be talking at you but hearing from you yeah love that <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, um, we will link as always to all the groups, all the suggestions, all the things that have been mentioned in interviews um, so that you can go and check them out and essentially do your own exploration because that is 100% how it begins. See you in a couple of weeks, guys. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer, put my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down from my feet. Our planet on start the ground.